and welcome to episode 24 of the Different Doctor Same Old Shit podcast. I'm Bo from France and to my west, the ever delightful Dr. L. How you doing, Doc? Oh, I'm well as always. Um, L is well. Um, what else should I be? Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember the last time I watched an episode of Doctor Who on the television at the time it was transmitted. I actually do believe um, it was episode two of Survival. Oh, I was thinking maybe it was the Paul McGann TV movie. You're right. Because I, I believe we watched that together when it was broadcast. Um, the, there were quite a number of people and we all watched it together. Yeah. You, you're right. I was wrong. Yeah, um, I, 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 I'm pretty convinced that would be the last time for, for you. Not for me, but, but, but for your good self. Yeah, so it's um, it's been something a bit different, actually. Mm. Um, mm. So I believe the plan is to dispense with the usual niceties. Correct. Um, if we were doing our other project, I would say, um, let's get rid of the keyboard intros and female uh. vocals and just get straight down into some brutal, ripping death. <laughs> but, yeah, let's just get thrashing. But this is a different project, Doc. <laughs> You've got you've got your podcast mixed up. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, I think I'm going to do that, and um, since it's 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 five rounds rapid out of the box, um, because of the circumstances under which I watched it, as in watching it on the television when it was transmitted, uh, with another program in front of it and a bit of an introduction and stuff, it it primed me to be nostalgic. Um, even while I was watching it. And sure. that's always a good thing. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is, you're right. Yeah, but before we kick into five rounds rapid proper, you know, just a quick apology. I'm, I'm, I've got the lurgy, guys. I'm going to do my best not to kind of cough and splutter my way through this. So if my, if my voice sounds a bit croaky and I sound a bit bunged up, that's the reason. Don't forget, at any point, you can contact us uh, by email at differentdocsos at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to Twitter and you can find us at SOS Different. Um, as the doc said, we, we, we're kind of dispensing with any kind of format. We're going to kick into five rounds rapid, and that's pretty much going to be the episode. We're just going to throw out our thoughts in no particular order, I imagine, um, and, you know, discuss our thoughts on, on obviously, the the, the, the the very first brand new episode of Doctor Who that's dropped since we've been doing this podcast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the doc made of this. I literally haven't got a clue because we've deliberately not spoken about it. So we're kind of coming into this as fresh as you guys are in terms of our opinions. Doc, you ready to rock? I absolutely am. Jenkins? Shout for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part one of the show, probably the final part of the show, which is, of course, five rounds rapid. Here, me and the doc normally kick around two or three ideas each and discuss them. But basically, that's what we're going to do for the whole bloody episode. Um, so <laughs> if, that doesn't, if that doesn't sound good to you, maybe skip this episode. Of course, the episode we're talking about tonight is um, episode one of the six-part serial, which is... Has the, has the subtitle Doctor Who 
flux. And um, uh, this is also subtitled Chapter One, The Halloween Apocalypse, um, written by uh, the one and only uh, Chris Chibnall and directed by Jamie Magnus Stone. Doc, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, so um, just a, a few thoughts to begin with. Um, like I said a minute or two ago, just the, the mere business of sitting down, putting the television on and sitting in front of it and watching the new episode of Doctor Who on the telly at the time I'm supposed to, with the programme in front of it and a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea at my elbow. Um, it felt right. Um, it felt mm. like the correct way to be doing it. Now, I know I could have done this several hundred times at any point over the last 15 years, almost. <laughs> but I didn't, and so there I was. I will say Chris Chibnall has done something that I didn't think the man was capable of, which is he's written something which, when visualised, looks and feels like nothing else I've ever seen on television before. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, it is good. I'm not convinced it was completely successful, but I'm really, really inclined to give him a mark or two just, and I, I don't even know if he tried. I, I don't know if that's just how the man's mind works. But I can't, I've never seen anything on television with a narrative structure quite like this before. By which I mean, it hasn't got one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It hasn't got anything like a story. That's, that's, that is definitely true. Um, it, 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 it seemed to me to be almost like a, like a jigsaw puzzle you know uh, let's say a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle slowly being pieced together and at the moment you know whoever's completing the puzzle has maybe assembled 80 of those thousand pieces yeah so um normally when when, when we start to talk about um, I need to check this. I need to go back into one of my critical theory textbooks and and and, um, and check that this is the correct expression. I believe the expression is narrative collapse. Sure. So it's it's when the story does something, or the nature of the story being told does something that undermines itself mm. or actually breaks the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be coming back to this, I suspect, a lot over the next six weeks. So um, I probably need to go back to my Gidebor. Um, or Magidaluz or someone like that and uh, check to make sure that I'm, I'm actually using the correct expression because I might not be. So, uh, ciao in advance. The wrong, po wrong podcast there, Doc. It doesn't matter. The, the ciao, uh, ciao time motherfucker is a, is a it's slaytanic cast. It doesn't matter, though. It, it's it, a good opportunity to plug our other podcast. Um, it is, and it means I'm getting meta, meta and postmodern and self-referential already. <laughs> you are. I mean, wow. Good for you, Doc. Well, um, how postmodern do you have to be? Yeah. Um, reference yourself. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I believe that makes me almost as snobby and stuck up and self obsessed as a real French media theorist. <laughs> mm. I always think of two particular examples whenever I think of this kind of narrative collapse. I think of the work of Jess Franco or uh, Jean Roland, uh, both of which I absolutely adore. And many people have commented that their movies work like dreams, which is they have an internal logic that doesn't resemble the logic of the real world. But once they make rules, 
within the confines of their own movie, they then stick to that, um, except in the case of genre allow when you, they don't. You could throw the same accusation at, at the likes of Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci, couldn't you? And I absolutely would. Uh, yeah. Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci are... Um, but <laughs> their movies make a bit more sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so you're... I mean, your typical genre allow movie exists for no other reason than to put um, a series of beautiful images um, on the screen and fade very dreamily from one to another um, and sort of espouse some vaguely bullshit existential philosophy. Yeah. Um, and um, Jean Roland movies um, exist to put a lot of girls with no clothes on. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and that's, that is that is the internal logic of the film. <laughs> <of Broadway>. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other, um, and this is kind of the, the unkind side of how this works. There is a movie called Jade, which... Um, is probably largely forgotten nowadays. People who commit these acts are in many ways no different from you and me. We got Prince in the hatchet. But they are no longer able to control their urges. They disassociate themselves from their own actions, often experiencing an hysterical blindness. They're blind to the darkness within themselves. Kyle Medford's dead. Oh my God, I just saw him today. You did? Did you ever see him socially? No, not really. And you never had a sexual relationship with him? I said I had no social contact with him. I do consider sex to be a social contact. I first read it pitched as a sort of a bit of a cash-in on Basic Instinct when that came out, but with, with, with a much better cast. So um, it's got Chaz Parlamentary, who's in The Usual Suspects. Um, it's got Linda Fiorentino, who is one of my favourite actresses ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even going back to um, the legendary bad girls of the 50s. I I can't think of anyone who essays feminine evil um, as well as Linda Fiorentino does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, she's great in every single thing she appears in. Unfortunately, this is a really, really bad movie. Um, the, it, it was summed up to me by one reviewer um, who described it as um, the work of a drunken editor who, having finished editing the movie into a coherent form, chopped it up um, into several 16-inch pieces and reassembled the pieces at random. So um, I presume at some stage during its writing and editing, it had a plot and maybe even one that made sense. But the thing you end up watching on screen makes no sense at all. Yeah, Um, and and, and you kind of get the idea that that's what's happening here, don't you? There seem to be five or six separate narratives that have all been written let's say that it's six i think it is six actually i think you've got six narratives and each one of those stories could be an individual episode of this six part of this six episode run 
But instead of doing them, doing them as six individual episodes, what Chibnall's decided to do is to is to chop up the film reel and just splice it together willy nilly. Yeah, um, and I get the idea that he's aiming for Dario, like he, he's he's aiming for Suspiria, um, mm. but he's actually hitting Jade. It also brought to mind to me a bit of Aaron, Aronofsky, you know, Darren Aronofsky. In particular, his movie, well, there's two movies, actually. Uh, either The Fountain... A special tree grows hidden. The tree of life. They say whoever drinks of its sap will live forever. They said that one day, if man continued in his ways, the creator would annihilate this world. Can I not be averse? He speaks to you. You must trust that he speaks in a way that you can understand. I saw water. Death by water. That's on your life. You know, both of which are, you know, kind of, kind of really kind of esoteric, oddball, existential examinations of humanity um, as seen through the through the kaleidoscopic filter of somebody on you know intensely powerful psychedelic drugs yeah and I suppose international law insists that we mention uh, Rashomon は、世にも恐ろしい地獄を見た。盗賊、美女、資料、そしてそまうり、四つの口がものが足る四つの地獄の声を聞かされた。まさにこれは心のジャングルの藪の中のものがたり、ひらひらと光る十億の目が。私の
And it was their very clear attempt to do an epic. And so each month for, I think, for four or five months, they would introduce one of the characters. Um, and then halfway through, there was an episode that brought all the characters together. And then they went on and, uh, and, and, and did something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's sort of a bit closer to home. So what I'm talking about here at least has something to do with Doctor Who. Um, but I, I think with your help, I've got my head around what it was that Chris Chibnall is trying to do. Um, I've mentioned before, I would love to see a Doctor Who story done in the style of Jean Rollin. Um, yeah. I would love to see one that, that just re- disregards anything like conventional narrative. Um, I mean, to be fair, episode one of the mind, in fact, most of the mind robber does a really good job of actually doing that. Mm. Um, but I would, I'd, I'd like one with, with even less story. Um, I suppose you could chuck uh, Warrior's Gate in there as well. I would, I think you could argue. Yeah, you certainly could. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, the narrative of Warrior's Gate is that it's anti-narrative. Mm. Um, it, that's incredibly meta in its own way because the whole plot of the story is the because the spaceship is made out of dwarf star alloy to stop the slaves from escaping um it's so dense it's causing the little universe that the the miniature pocket universe they're in um to collapse under gravitation mm. so the narrative collapse is actually caused by a material collapse or a geometric collapse within sure. the story yeah absolutely um, so a physical collapse on screen well as as the physical reality of the little universe they're in begins to fold on itself, then the story begins to fold back on itself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it, I, I almost feel bad putting, like, one of the very best examples of hard and high science fiction writing in Doctor Who ever um, alongside this, because I think in the end, I, I, I'm, I am going to laud it for its ambition, and I am going to laud it for what, I think it tries to do. And it is perfectly true that I've never seen anything like this on television before. Um, at the moment, I'm going to hold fire on saying whether I think it's Chris Chibnall not being able to write, Chris Chibnall um, attempting something that's clearly beyond him, or maybe even by the end of episode six, um, I'm prepared to say, yeah, maybe he'll put it off. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, we, we don't know where this is going. We don't know if by the end of episode six, every, you know, it, you know, you kind of watch the end of episode six and then come back and watch episode one and everything makes total sense. Um, you know, the, this is the very definition of, 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 of the thing we've talked about before, surely, which is the mystery box writing. You know, you just kind of dangle carrots and don't provide any answers by the end of the episode in the hope that, you know, the, you intrigue viewers enough that they'll come back for part two. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I'm going to keep that condemnation under my breath until I know how it works out. Um, If I were to condemn this episode for doing this, then um, I would have to be very, very harsh with, let's say, The Ambassadors of Death, part one. Sure. That does nothing but set up four... It it does nothing but set up four different mysteries. Yeah. Um, And, um, you know, full disclosure here, at least one of them never even gets solved at all. Mm Mm-hmm. I watched it with. I watched this episode with. I've, I've watched this twice, just for the record. I watched it on on Saturday on on Sunday evening. I didn't actually watch it as it went out, um, but I, I watched it a little bit later. 
um, by myself. And then this evening, before just before recording, I watched it with my housemates. Now, you know, my housemates are not particularly versed in Who. They, you know, they watch their sci-fi. Of course, they know what Doctor Who is, but they, you know, they, they certainly don't know much about it. Um, and uh, you know, inevitably, I asked them their take at the end of it. And what they said was quite interesting. They, 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 they thought that it was utterly perplexing and confusing. They didn't have a single clue what was happening. And they kind of viewed it as almost like a sensory experience rather than a narrative one. You know, you'd, uh, what they were saying was you, it just seemed like you were just meant to kind of watch it and, and, and feel and experience what was happening rather than actually think about it and process it. Um, which I think is, I think it's a fair evaluation. But, but then, you know, and and, and maybe this is the worry. Um, you know, I asked the question. You know, if I wasn't here, would you come back for part two? And they both, you know, very very demonstratively said no, they would not. And considering the personalities of the people involved, and probably of necessity, because the BBC being an organisation that demands very high standards of professionalism. For Doctor Who in 2021 to try to do that is kind of the equivalent of me sitting down with my four-track machine and trying to compose, uh, like trying trying to compose um, a psychedelic album. Yeah. Um, the personalities are wrong. There's nothing remotely free-thinking or psychedelic about the personality of Chris Chibnall. I think we've established that already. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, uh, try, trying to do something that's merely a sensory experience. Um, which I think is a polite way of saying a bit trippy, isn't it? Yeah, oh, of course, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, but, you know, but both of these guys are certainly, uh, you know, interested in um, experimentations with psilocybin, and, and I don't think that was lost in, in the viewing experience. Um, but I think it was completely lost. Um, I mean, it's... I know of what I speak because on the couple of occasions that I've attempted to write psychedelic narratives, mm. um, they come out a lot like this, and yeah. um, they—you can spot them a mile off um, as the the work of a straight guy who's trying really hard to write psychedelic. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like when you see—I don't know—you um, know, like I, I don't know. Imagine, imagine like a—you're at like a family party. And you see one of your 16-year-old cousins pretending to be drunk because they've had kind of a sniff of a wine bottle or half a shandy. And they're pretending to be drunk, but they're getting it all wrong because they've never experienced being drunk. Yeah. Um, I was saying, uh, I I was going to go on to say, it's like the excruciating bits, the intentionally excruciating bits in 70s sitcoms when the 40-year-old middle manager um, is desperately attempting to impress an 18-year-old girl mm-hmm. um, and um, turns out in, like, wooden beads and a caftan and sandals. Well, you know, you know, because if you're writing something, you know, very often it's very, it's important that you've actually experienced it, isn't it? You know, one time I, would, I, I, wanted, I, I needed to write a chapter for something and I needed to, to be involved in a, in, a, in a bar fight in the chapter and so I actually, I actually made it happen in real life, Doc. It's an incredible, one of the most dangerous things I've ever done in my life. But in order to kind of inject reality into the story, 
I went into a real, real rough pub in Wolverhampton, and I picked a fight with a motherfucker. Um, <laughs> it's true, and uh, you know, and 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 it's a great chapter as a result, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose the lesson we take away from that is, if you want to do that kind of method writing, um, if you understand the risks, you can do it. The thing is, um, you mustn't uh, like you you mustn't set out to write a chapter where you win the fight. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I certainly did not. Yeah. Um, One second I was knocking um, his glass of whiskey out of his hand as he was bringing it up to his mouth. The next thing, I, the next thing I knew, I was on my back outside with with three scary-looking guys, kind of glaring, standing over me. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Yeah, um, I can. So I, I think what we've established is the inadvisableness, inadvisability um, <laughs> of attempting to write from an experience uh, an experiential point of view that you've never had mm. um i i don't know whether this would i don't know whether this set out to be psychedelic i don't think psychedelia is is is, is a big deal in 2021 mm. mm-hmm. um i don't know whether instead of being psychedelic i don't know whether it's an attempt to depict a narrative as one would experience it through effectively the the ADD lens of living your life entirely through your cell phone. Mm. So got three different messaging applications running at once um, and you're watching a video of something and you're playing a game and you get bored every five seconds and keep sure. flipping one from one to another. Um, there, there's a part of me that just really wants to say it, it's it's that kind of ADD, but on the telly. Doc, who is the cold open trying to appeal to? Could you explain it to me? Because to me, it was it's one of the most fucking moronic things I've ever I've ever seen in my life, um, and I felt frankly embarrassed to be watching it in company. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I had deliberately skipped over that, and I was kind of hoping you weren't going to drag me back to it. Oh, sorry, Doc. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes. I'll tell you what it makes me think of. Mm. Um, the trailer to long forgotten Will Smith flop, The Wild Wild West. <laughs> giddy, giddy, Wild never... Wild West, I think you mean, don't you? Not getting enough lift. We need more speed. Gordy, that's a cliff. Yes, I know. That means the ground is going to end. Yes, I know. Before there was a secret service, there was West. Jim West. West, Jim West, Desperado, Rough Rider. No, you don't want nada. None of this. It's gunning this. Brother running Jim West. Taming the West. So remember the name. Now who you gonna call? Not the GB. Yeah, uh, <laughs> when he's stomping when when he's stomping through the wild wild west, <laughs> uh, you know that one. Um, and the, the trailer consisted of nothing but the bits where they'd got Will Smith to do an Eddie Murphy impersonation. So uh, I think there were actually three instances in the trailer of a crash zoom into Will Smith's wailing mouth. Mm. Mm. Um, and what else did, 
it reminded me just as much of the death throes of Sylvester McCoy era Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I literally don't know. I don't know who that was supposed to appeal to. Um, I'm tempted to say the five-year-olds, but yeah. uh, once again, it's it's a forty-year-old. It's it's a forty-plus-year-old man trying to write something to appeal to the kids. Yeah, it, it, it made me think of um, The Apprentice. You know. so often alan sugar will set the apprentice the the apprentices like a task to you know to to, to design a toy to appeal to eight-year-olds and come up with like um an advertising campaign to go with it and 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 the results are just so utterly painful um and and, and it really really it really brought that to mind to me I, I i genuinely felt embarrassed that my housemates were sitting there watching it you know sitting there thinking this is the fucking shit that you watch well I mean, here's the thing. Um, the people who have made themselves legends by being able to understand the psychology of very small children, and I'm, you know, people like um, what Doctor Who reference, Peter Purvis, and then Brian Cant and Floella Benjamin. Mm. They never patronise little kids like that. It, 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 you know, you, you just don't talk down to you. Don't talk down to kids. No. Um, absolutely not. I mean, the, those people became legends on television and I suppose legends in child development and child psychology because they hit the exact mark of being able to um, address effectively their intellectual inferiors as equals. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I've kind of taken you down a negative path, so let's try and swing you around back to the positive. I was very concerned about the um, inclusion of John Bishop um, in in the new series. John Bishop is is, is a, a, a comedian that has never appealed to me. You know, I find I find his brand of comedy so obvious and so tedious. I think Stuart Lee described either he, it was either him or McIntyre as, as as like having somebody pour pour their own warm diarrhoea down your throat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> rather scathing, but rather accurate. Um, and so, and so, it was, you know, it, it was a matter of grave concern. But those concerns were very, very quickly alleviated. I absolutely loved the first couple of scenes with him. You know, the, you know, the great, you know, the, the, actually rather funny, unusually for Chibnall, you know, actually doing something, an attempt at humour actually paid off, you know, where he was the, you know, like the fake um, tour guide, which I quite enjoyed. Um, and, and then just that lovely sequence between him and the, the the lady with one arm, whose, whose name has uh, slipped my mind temporarily, um, which obviously you know that he's kind of pushing for a romantic date, and she's kind of reminding him, no, 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 it's not, you know, it's not going to, it's not a proper date. I thought it was all rather sweet. I really liked it. 
Yeah, um, it had, um, I equally enjoyed um, those bits um, with the confrontation with the dog-faced alien. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the first bits. I mm-hmm. mean, it was clearly aiming. It, it was clearly aiming for Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, it was clearly aiming for um, one of those bits in Douglas Adams where you know um, Arthur Dent says, "Ford, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it." Uh-huh. Oh yes, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a bit lumpen compared to that. Um, but then. Aiming for Douglas Adams and falling short—I I, I don't think is a stick I, I, I can beat people too hard with. No, um, no, certainly not. Uh, you know, um, curse you to hell! You are worthless because you're not as good as Douglas Adams. Mm. Um, mm. No, and I mean that—that that definitely goes into a points for trying. You're right. Um, the attempts at comedy weren't completely execrable. Mm-hmm. And like you said, um, I found a lot of them quite charming. Yeah. Um, as seems to be the way with modern television that we've commented on before, really cannot lay off showing how the lives of working class people are so relentlessly grim and filthy now, can they? Well, I mean, it, it, I was, I mean, I was deeply irritated by the fact that you know this is. You know, you've you've got a, a, a new main character who happens to be a scouser, um, and so of course, you know, oh, it's Liverpool, it's the North. You know, it's got to be represented with with kind of poverty and hopelessness. So you know, they're set in a food bank, but you know, but he, but he's so kind of salt of the earth that he doesn't he doesn't accept the food from the food bank, even though when he goes back home, you know, his own cupboards are bare, but he's too proud. To accept the food bank, you know. I mean, that 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 was irritating, and 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 plus, um, the dog creature Carvanista, I think his name was, wasn't it? Um, you know, to, to you know to to inject some mirth into the character. You know, let's give him a let's give him a northern accent because that's funny, isn't it? Because northern people are funny, aren't they? Just just well, by the way they speak. Um, I mean, um, he's he's got um, he's got a, a Lancashire accent. Um, and he's got a name that means coal miner in Spanish. Ha ha ha! Oh, is that right? I didn't know that, Doc. Um, I would uh, that that would be my first guess. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, my first guess would carbon uh, uh, carbonista would mean yeah. Uh, it's with a v, w- though, Doc. Not with a b, with a v. Carvinista with a v, not a b. Um, I yeah, um, they're not fooling me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, you're going with it anyway, regardless of yes. the spelling. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, um, I, I still can't hate it. I mean, um, the um, the two uh, late George and early Edwardian blokes at the beginning, what the fuck accents were they supposed to mm. be? I've got no idea. Uh, uh, M- Mr. Mr. Williamson, um, I mean... I, I don't even know where they were aiming for because, like, he veered wildly between Shropshire, um, Wolverhampton, (laughs) um, and Derby. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, for for a man who lived in an era when personal travel was very, very difficult, Mm. um, he appeared to have picked up an interesting mixture of accents. Mm, mm. Um, <clears throat> did you pick up any 
classic horror references, Doc? Because I've I, I got a couple. Um, you go first, then I'll go next. Yeah. Um, some of the music was very, very reminiscent of um, the main title music from Phantasm. always been one of my personal favorite horror themes and I, I couldn't help but keep hearing it every so often you'd get a little kind of uh, tantalizing snippet of phantasm coming through not complaining doc because it's fucking great of course yeah um, and i am obliged to point out at this point phantasm 2 of course has the best catch copy um, of any film in the history of the world ever Go on. the sequel with balls <laughs> yeah very good yeah yeah and yeah i mean people that don't know what phantasm is it it, it it's a i mean it, it's very psychedelic too isn't it so it, it is thematically appropriate and i wonder if i wonder if that was that you know oh. was the was the, the composer's intent it's not the first time by the way doc um because in the past you know when, when i've been sending my reviews into into our mates over at the big blue box podcast i've mentioned on more than one occasion the fact that this new composer that replaced Murray Gold, I'm sorry, I've temporarily forgotten his name. Let me have a, let me just quickly find it. Segan something, isn't it? I just can't remember. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. It doesn't matter. But the, the musical composer, he's definitely dropped, you know, he's definitely dropped bits of, of classic horror, you know, 70s and 80s horror themes into the Doctor Who music before. So he's, he's, he's got a track record of this, Doc. Yeah, so... Um... As a thing that has um, virally infected the DNA of modern genre television, uh, does anyone, is, is this well known or would anyone seriously doubt that Phantasm is like, um, is basically the wellspring from which Stranger Things came? Oh, certainly. I'll be, yeah. honest, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't spot any influences of Stephen King or the things that everyone reckons in Stranger mm. Things. As, as far as I can tell, it was Phantasm. Like, mm.
Yeah, I just think um, I think I think Stephen King is the easier go-to because more people are familiar with it. Phantasm is, you know, as much as we find it hard to believe, Phantasm is is <laughs> it's super it's super cult, isn't it? You know, it's super super obscure um, because people are mental. <laughs> um, it, so yeah, anyway, good spot. That's all I can say. Um, yeah. I need to talk about the music and the titles sure. um, before we finish up today. Um, we're stuck on uh, classic horror um, references at the moment. I feel as though the like vaguely skull-faced monster thing is something I should recognise. Mm. And it occurred to me, and if it is, it's a very, very strong reference for a family programme. Go on. Um, didn't you think of the partially resurrected Uncle Frank from Hellraiser? I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. out here doc cenobites particularly the yeah. female one you know and yes. uh, the, the male one too for sure um but that but that female that that you know that one that he kind of converts that looks very similar to him um she looks almost exactly the same as the female cenobite from hellraiser one and two it's it's yeah. uncanny there's no um, chance there is no possibility that that isn't a deliberate reference no, I don't think so either. Mm. Um, I'm glad you said that. Mm. Um, right at the beginning, where he's um, imprisoned, um, isn't he actually chained to a thing that looks remarkably like the whirly yeah, right. pillar from hell? Yeah, like the uh, yeah, like the evil totem thing that, that Frank's strapped yeah. to. Yeah, you, you, you're spot on. And th and that female, that female cenobite. In, in, in the episode that we've just watched, I'm not talking about from Hellraiser. You know, the the, the one that we've seen in the episode today. You know, she even kind of invokes kind of some, you know, some kind of kinky, kinky, sadomasochistic sex intentions. Because, you know, when she, you know, she's all kind of bound up in leather and she and she just stares into the camera and says, we're going to have fun with you. I think we all know what she means, Doc. Yeah. I, uh, and um, I mean, it's... Uh, she breaks the fourth wall like doing it, uh, yeah. like very, um, very much like Pinhead does when he says, "We'll tear your soul apart." That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's it, 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 it's right in your face. Yeah, Hellraiser, all over the place. Um, 
we've made comment about Hellraiser in a completely different context. And it's interesting, isn't it, that a film that draws so heavily on um, a subculture that was way, way out there. Um, I mean, beyond the extremes of extreme, you know, ritual scarification and piercing and suturing fetishes were like very like beyond the pale when that film came out Mm -hmm. and these days um like your driving instructor's probably into it yeah yeah well didn't we make reference to the fact that um you know was i think we were talking about highlander for some reason and and had like the kurgan from another time comes a man of great power talk funny nash where are you from lots of different places a warrior of incredible strength. You've the devil in you. We've been kinsmen 20 years. Connor McLeod was my kinsman. I don't know who you are. Because you were born different, men will fear you, try to drive you away. man uncertain of his future. What you got here, Brenda, is a guy who's been creeping around since at least 1700. It's not possible. And haunted by his past. Wait a minute, Nash. I want some answers. You cannot die, McLeod. I'm Connor McLeod of the club. The big bad in Highlander was this kind of menacing figure. Um, and now it's just a bloke that works in the fucking supermarket. Cultural appropriation, mate. Cultural I appropriation. I know, I know. It's infuriating. Um, I <laughs> don't know whether this was an attempt at humour or not. And I can't even remember the line, but I, I was moved to laughter uh, rather than anything else. By, I think... The first word spoken in this episode was some virtue signalling. Oh, go on, remind me. I, I, I didn't know uh, the first line. I can't remember. I, I, I'll, I'll have to go back and check. Um, but I, I just watched that line. Um, well, um, it was something. It, it was literally something like, "I'm completely outraged at you." Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I'll, I'll see uh, you right on Twitter. Do you? All right, fair enough. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I, I couldn't help it. I just split my sides mm. as soon as, and um, it just put a big smile on my face because, ironically enough, I think this is the edgiest thing Doctor Who could do at the arse end of 2021, which is borderline, and I mean very, very ambiguously, do some virtue signalling at the same time of taking the piss out of virtue signalling. Mm. Mm. Um and there was, there, there, there was some weird attempts at humour too, with you know with with the with the use of the word the flux. I did. I, I presume you picked up on these. You know, what's the flux and whatever the flux and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, um, I, I presume that was meant to be funny, or or, or or was that supposed to be like super edgy and dangerous? In which case, fuck me, Chris. Fucking grow up. Stuff like that makes me interested more than anything else because, yeah. like you. I, I want to know. I want to know what these people think they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to read an. I don't want to read a carefully curated and stage managed interview with someone that's been checked by their press agent. Um, and I wouldn't even mind swearing myself to secrecy forever. Um, I wouldn't need to spill the beans. Um, just for my satisfaction, I'd love to corner one of these people in a pub one night 
and just have a long chat with them and and just get to know what they think they were doing. Sure. Um, I mean, is is it Chibnall just being super cynical? Um, I, I presume he'd either already quit or else he knew that his number was up when he was working on this. Yeah. Um, is it just him being like super cynical? Um, and if it's him being super cynical, so we, we, we know the man is kind of short of original ideas. Does he think he's being Robert Holmes? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't uh, know the answer. I wish I, I wish I could answer your question, Doug, but I, I really don't know. I think he thinks he's being edgy. I mean, that, that's my genuine belief. I think he thinks that that kind of stuff is, is, is proper edgy. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a bit embarrassing, really, but... What um, can you do? So he he's he thinks he's being Robert Holmes, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, he thinks he's being mercilessly cynical um, and um, you know giving you hope and snatching it away um, and just presenting this utterly bleak universe where laughter is only ever hollow laughter and it's only ever um, a way of dealing with the depression and the horror. Mm. Um, that the universe actually is. Mm. Um, so if that's what he's doing, he's not actually doing a Robert Holmes. What he's doing is doing an Eric Saywood when Eric Saywood is in Robert Holmes' drag, if that mm. makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It does. There was, there was one line that genuinely made me laugh, and, 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 and that was clearly the intention. And it's when, um, it's when the Doctor's talking to... Uh, what's his name? A Carvinista? Um, and... <clears throat> They're having a bit of a, a bit of an argument, and and she says something like, "I, I, I couldn't be any clearer." And just the, the her tone of voice, it's it's it, it, it's so perfect, and and the, the kind of the look on on his doggy face, is is absolutely great. Um, so, so so that one kind of hit for me. What what did you make of the of that of that dog character? I found it really really difficult to, to take seriously. Really, I mean, I I, I know it's. I know it's, it's I know it's a silly thing to complain about when I you know when I, when I will happily watch fucking like Chewbacca in Star Wars without complaint, um, but I, I don't know I, I can't think of a dog alien that has ever ever worked in any in any movie or show, um, and this and this one didn't work for me unfortunately, Doc. Um. I think the crucial thing is if you're going to have a masculine costume that is like to be perceived as cute or funny or silly, yeah, you can't um, you can't then have the the characters in the narrative drawing attention to it being cute or sure. laughing at it sure. or you know I mean if, if you're going to have an alien that's a dog thing, you can't have the characters referring to it as the dog thing. Sure. Yeah, um, but but then in Star Wars, you know, Han Solo calls him fuzzball and furball all the time. Clearly, Han Solo has earned the right to use what amount to racial insults. Yeah, yeah, of course. Jokingly about his, um, about his best friend. Yeah, um, that's the big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, Weeping Angels. Doc, talk to me about them. What do you know about them? Here is what I know. Um, they were in Blink. Mm. Um, and everyone thought they were a marvellous contribution to that episode and um, really strikingly original villains um, and everyone everyone whose opinion I heard at the time said um, 
you know, that's what's really nice about Doctor Who. Um, it can do stuff like that, and it can have things like that as one-off villains, and you don't have to keep bringing them back. Yeah. Um, and then, apparently, the show kept bringing them back and bringing them back. Mm. Um, and I get the opinion this massively blunted their effect. Mm. Mm. I mean, everything you just said there is correct. Here... You know, I, I thought I thought it was a, I thought it was a really really effective scene. You know, I thought it was the only se- sequence in it that could probably pro- properly be described as scary. It made one of my housemates gasp actually. Um, you know, you know, the, 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 you know, she found it so effective. Um, so I think it's pretty evident why you know why they are so admired, why they are so beloved. I thought it worked great, but of course, at this point, we've got absolutely no idea why they're there. That's a bit, sure. So that's a bit of a problem, I suppose. Um, and you know, by this time, we'd already had the comedy Santarans laughing yeah. like Anthony fucking Ailey, hadn't we? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that came after, actually. I, th- I think, I think the the, the Santaran sequence is after the Weeping Angel bit, but but you're right, you know. Um, you know, another recurring villain um, back, kind of chewing the scenery. Um, I, I thought the Santarans looked great, by the way. I think they've made. I think we mentioned it last episode. You know, but yes. or, or in our breaking news episode, um, you know, they, 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 they've made a deliberate effort, a concerted effort to make them look as kind of trad Santaran as possible, as it were. Yeah, and I mean, this is. Um, one of my favourite things about Doctor Who monsters, the Ice Warriors, we're told, are all very proud and very individualistic. Um, and they've all got personalities and they've all got names, but they all look the same. Um, whereas the Sontarans, we're told, are all clones of each other or clones of an original Sontaran. Um, and they're all absolutely identical and nobody can tell them apart, not even each other, but actually all the Sontarans we've ever seen on screen in Doctor Who look totally different. <laughs> it's true, um, isn't it? You're quite right, Doug. Yeah. I've never quite thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Sontarans in the original series benefited from three quarters of the time being played by really great actors. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people say that Clinton Grain is um, uh, is too tall, um, mm-hmm. and possibly he, um, but I just love his performance all the way through the two Doctors. Um I think he's fantastic. There's even a bit where he makes great use of the cheapness of his mask, and mm. uh, he has a line about, um, "I, I fear I may have made a tactical error." <laughs> and um, when, uh, as if to sort of emphasise this possible moment of soft-headedness, um, he presses the side of his latex rubber head and actually dents it a bit. Oh, well, yeah. Mm. Um, but it, it's just a really, really beautiful, beautifully essayed moment. I can't imagine that anyone but the actor came. Uh, that, that's a bit of improv from the actor. That is that the, the director would never have told him to have undercut the costume that badly. Mm. Mm. Um, I think my, um, my I think my favourite Sontaran is the one from um, Invasion of Time. The one that's got the speech impediment. I think absolutely great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. Um, <laughs> When I first learned the actor's name, uh, yeah. that was from, uh, from 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 Toby. He used to run the Wolverhampton local group, mm. um, and Toby was kind of an authority figure, and I I greatly admired um, his knowledge about Doctor Who at the time. And he said it. Um, he's this uh, he's he's this actor named Derek Dedman, mm-hmm. um, and 
I, I literally can't help dropping into Toby's posh Shropshire accent when I say um, his name is Derek Dedman, and um, he had no idea who Derek Dedman was. Two weeks later, um, I caught his name at the end of Never the Twain. And the next mm. time, I, I, I think fourteen-year-old me like rushed up to Toby and goes, "I know who Derek Dedman is. I know who De he, he's—he's Ringo from Never the Twain." <laughs> um, it was, and, and that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I mean, yeah, it. wonderful. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and once you hear him speak, then suddenly it all makes sense. Yeah. Uh, particularly when he says, "We must fight this doc tour <laughs> on his own." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like somebody going um, to, going to fucking watch West Ham, not the Sontari. <laughs> 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 uh, we're not the north side, we're not the south side. This is the west side, Upton Park. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, one of the Green Street masses. And then obviously there's um, there's Kevin Lindsay, um, who's just delivery for a passionless creature is so libidinal and leering all the way through. Mm. Um, the hair is finer and the thorax is of a different construction. Mm. Um, mm. Later, I understand your species has a primary and secondary reproductive cycle. It is inefficient. Change yeah. it. <laughs> That's Robert Holmes again, isn't it, Doc? Um, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's... <laughs> It's obviously um, a reference to the, um, well, shall we say the little bit more than odd couple relationship between Blood Axe and Iron Grom. Mm, mm. Um, That's it, it, I, it, I, the Time Warrior you're talking about there. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. Um, where uh, at various moments, um, Iron Grom just about stops short of getting Blood Axe in a headlock and going, who's your daddy? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, I imagine, I imagine many spankings take place in that household. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else, Doc? Let's try and wrap this up in the next five or ten minutes. Um, I want to talk about the music and the end title sequence. Please. I, I don't like the music very much, um, but it might be, with a bit more work, it might end up being my second favourite iteration of the theme tune. Wow. Go on then, Doc. Explain that. You're saying you don't like it, but it, but it could potentially be becoming your almost favourite? So the, um, the hair metal disco version um, from seasons 18 through 21... Mm-hmm. Um, was mine that was the one that i really uh, made my bones as a fan while that that version was in use um i like it and i can understand why many other people hate it yeah uh, 
particularly the um, the Brian May guitar solo in the middle. Well, um, it, it's like... a firm favourite of mine, but you know that is because I have a deep love of of of, prog- of, of, of progressive metal. So of course I'm going to fucking like that. <laughs> um, the original one. Um, the 1963 through to 1969, and then in gradually debased forms through to 1979. Uh, that's the original and still the best. Mm. one of that that's amongst my top five favorite pieces of music ever mm-hmm. um and honestly when people like um bill hartnell from um, underworld and richard james the fx twin um start talking about that was the thing that made them want to make music in the first place did, did um, you say that the guy was called bill hartnell Heart Knoll, I believe. Oh, sorry, sir. Go on. You, you understand my confusion. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I believe somewhere out there um, there is an album or at least a uh, an extended EP um, of the techno luminaries of the mid-90s performing versions of the Doctor Who theme. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to find out if I'm right. And I need to find if I can get need to find out if I can get hold of a copy of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Surely that would be extant on YouTube if it exists. You would think. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll, have, we'll have a dig. We'll have a dig, Doc. Don't worry. So anyway, then you've got what people call the the, the Toatl theme, um, the one that was used for season twenty three, the Trial of a Time Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which is forgettable and not very good. One notch down from that, you've got the Sylvester McCoy iteration, which is almost unlistenable. And then finally, right at the bottom of the pile, you've got what people call the Delaware version. Basically, one that the BBC Radiophonic Workshop did when they, well, um, and I, I, I think this is a bit of a tragic story um, in its own right. They spent an absolute ton of money. They spent, I believe, thirty thousand pounds in nineteen seventy-two on a custom synthesizer to go in the workshop. This, of course, being in the days when a custom synthesizer was a room and not even a small room. Sure. They spent a staggering amount of money, um, and it sounded crap. It, and they composed a version of the Doctor Who theme 
and I think probably the, uh, if you just look at Delaware theme, you can find it, or infamously, if you can find the opening titles to episode three of Carnival of Monsters. I think that was the only time it was ever used and then only in Australia. And it's such a horrible piece of music. Oh, wow. Uh, I was totally, totally oblivious to this, Doc. I'm astonished. Yeah, um, you you need to look it up after you, you need to look it up on YouTube or something afterwards. It will be there, and you need to sit there and shake your head and think to yourself, "Who in the name of God ever thought this was good?" Mm. Like after the guy had performed it, um, whoever it was who performed it, it might even have been like someone respectable. After they'd performed it, how did they not listen back to the tape? Um, and immediately put the tape in the box marked for erasure and reuse. Yeah, it, this makes me think of Seinfeld. You know, um, the Seinfeld music is, is you know, it, it's so kind of important to the show. Inexplicably, I think it was at the start of season three or four. They, they did, they, they, they did like a remix where they added, <laughs> where they, they added, like almost like gospel choir elements to it. <laughs> and it oh, it is so terrible. It just makes your your, your toes curl. Okay, every time somebody recommends a doctor, always the best. Always is he good? Always the best. <laughs> this guy's the best. They can't all be the best. There can't be this many best. Someone's graduating at the bottom of these classes. Where are these doctors? Is somewhere someone saying to their friend, you should see my doctor. He's the worst. Oh, yeah, he's the worst. He's the absolute worst there is. Whatever you've got, it'll be worse after you see him. He's just a, he's a butcher. A man's a butcher. And then there's always that, make sure that you tell him that, you know, you know me. Why? What's the difference? He's a doctor. What is he? Oh, you know Bob. Okay, I'll give you the real medicine. And everybody else, I'm giving Tic Tacs. And usually for lunch, I'll have a salad. And for dinner, I eat whatever I want. What do you think the worst part of being blind is? But it only lasted about three episodes before they realized what a horrific mistake they made and they went back to the original. Wow. Mm hmm. And it, um, it's one of those where you wonder how it gets to that point in the first place. Definitely. Mm. So um, then there's the various Murray Gold versions, which I have trouble retaining. I have trouble even thinking about what. I quite like the Eccleston one. <laughs> And I can I can picture that in my head. I can hear it now as I'm speaking, and I do quite like it. You know, it, it it's it's got bombast. It's nice and bassy, and it and it's got energy. But since then, you know, they're hard to separate, 
and none of them have kind of captured that spirit again for me. And, and there's one in an episode that we watched quite recently where the the recognisable bit of the theme has been almost like deleted, and the only recognisable bit is is, is is the middle eight. Yeah, I, th- I think you're talking about the Cap- the Capaldi version, aren't you? Could be, uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's one we've heard pretty recently. So mm-hmm. in any case, um, I wish it didn't have percussion in it, but I like this current version quite a bit, and I really like the background to the end. Enti- I hate the lettering. I hate the typography, mm-hmm. um, and I hate the fact that it scrolls. Yeah, and I hate the fact that that's damn much of it. Um, but the actual movie blob, moving blobby things in the background, they look almost as good as something from 1971. Sure. They look almost as good as the end titles to The Tomorrow People. Well done, BBC. You've, with, with your large budget in 2021, you've succeeded in making something that looks almost as good as a broadcast kids program from 1971. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So almost 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good point, Doc, and, and I, I fundamentally agree with you. Um, anything else before we wrap this up? Oh, no. Uh, on that note, I just wanted to make a passing comment. Um, the Tomorrow People, uh, best TV program theme music ever discuss mm, for mm. a later date. Yeah, sure. We'll put, yeah, we'll, well, maybe we'll make a note of that for one of our topics when we get back to our regularly scheduled broadcasting, Doc. Yeah. Um, God knows how long. In about five or six weeks. Um, oh, one last thing. The Cloister Bell. It's always nice to hear. Remind me, Doc, when, when was that first introduced? Was that in Warriors Gate? Um, I believe it was in Logopolis. Oh, it was Logopolis, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it's it was established then as a um, a noise the TARDIS makes to signal um, impending doom. It's like imminent catastrophe, um, isn't it, basically? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Logopolis, of course, it's heard in a scene which takes place in the TARDIS cloisters. Mm-hmm. And so therefore makes perfect sense. Um, I don't understand why it should be like audible all over the place. Yes, um, but the, 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 this isn't the first time we've heard the cloister bell, you know, outside of any kind of rational locale, is it? I think even in, even in classic Who, it got a bit overused, didn't it? Post-Logopolis. Possibly, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, it's... 
it's a nice noise. It's a great radiophonic effect. Yeah. Um, it's one of those sound effects that you want to be cherry about using nowadays because it shames current offerings so very, very badly. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. But it's nice to hear and thematically appropriate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else to say, Doc, or should we should we call it a night? Um. Yeah, I don't intend to flog this too much. I've mm-hmm. got to keep something in reserve and keep some enthusiasm because we've got another five episodes to get through. Um, it's, I think this is a note I'm going to end up hitting unless something very different starts to happen, um, which is I can satisfactorily say I didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'll probably spend the rest of my life and I'll never feel the need to watch it ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the rest of the story um, becomes cracking, I think I can really, really happily skip that episode. Yeah. I mean, if I did, I'm kind of similar. Oh, sorry, Doc, go on. I thought you were done. Oh, um, listeners don't know this, but I'm much more picky about episodes than you are. Um, you, for instance, will just, when, when you decide to do a watch through of, let's say, STNG, you'll watch every episode of every season. Sure. Um, if I were to do that, I will end up constantly re- revisiting probably the same eight or 12 episodes from season one, the same eight or 12 episodes from season two, most of season three, most of season four. And then there's there's the huge soap opera section in the middle of season five that I, I, I will skip because I can't stand it. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you are much more dedicated to the cause mm. in this. Um, I have come to the conclusion that life's too short for sitting through telly that I don't like. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fair enough, and maybe it's the, the you know the fact that you know we, we we do consume TV in different ways, but you know because when I'm on a repeat watch, I'm generally doing something else. You know, I'm generally playing a bit of PlayStation at the same time, so you know I'm not yeah. quite as focused as you are. Whereas you're kind of you know you're glued to it, aren't you? And you dedicate your entire massive brain to that one to to, to just that one thing. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never got out of the habit of because good telly. Um, it was a rare and precious thing upon a time, um, you know, when I didn't even have a video recorder, less still a big video collection, less still access to streaming services. Mm. And I've never quite adjusted myself to the modern way of watching television. And, and maybe this is wrong. Um, maybe this is why I don't appreciate it so much. But I like to watch movies or television by putting aside an hour or two hours or three hours yeah. and sitting down and, and, and watching it, for, you know, fixing the snack fixing a cup of tea and sitting down and watching it from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fair enough, Doc. It's fair enough. Let's wrap it up, um, you know, before we go into overkill mode. Join us next time, guys, um, when we'll be inevitably um, sitting down to chat to talk about Doctor Who Flux Chapter 2, which is called War of the Santarans. Are you going to be there, Doc? Yeah, um, but... As you can imagine, I would have liked it better if the episode was just called War. <laughs> I totally understand, Doc. Now, run for your life.